Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Outreach and Marketing. Joining me is my co-host, Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine, who's joining us from the northern debt up there on Link Winnemacachi in New Hampshire. What what lake are you actually on, nice Bill? Try. Nice try. Nice try, Shipman. Link <laughs> Winnipesaukee. I was close. Look, I was pretty darn close. You're- you were pretty close. Yeah. Pretty close. Not quite. So you have the family compound there on the lake. It's uh, really picturesque. It's right out of uh, a Stephen King novel. Yeah, it's right out of On Golden Pond. Yes. Which, uh, you know, On Golden Pond was uh, filmed on the lake next door to Lake Winnipesaukee, but it looks like one big lake from the uh, from the sky. It's hard to see that the two lakes aren't actually connected, but they're very close to each other. So yeah, it's gorgeous up here. Weather's been perfect, and uh, yeah, it's nice to be out of hot and humid Annapolis for a week or so in the summertime. Yes, it is hot and humid, and uh, here at the home studio, we just had an AC casualty. Um, the BG&E guy just left. Good times down here in the mid-Atlantic during the summer. Um, but we, as we predicted, we went from hoodie weather right to the swelter of summer. Uh, we thought that the winter slash spring would never end at the early part of this work from home phase. And then as everybody said, as is usually the case in the Annapolis region, it jumped right to summer. So you're lucky you're up there, there, Bill, long story short, weather wise. So a lot has been going on around the fleet. First thing we wanted to chat about very quickly is the CNO report, which is actually the vice CNO report on the T.R. Crozier situation came out. We entreat the audience to read it. It's got, I mean, it's like a Jagman, right? It has uh, lots of findings of fact. It has a summary, an endorsement, but it really is an interesting chronology of who knew what when. And there have been a lot of opinions going back and forth, you know, whether Crozier was being set up as a scapegoat for the Navy whether Modley was right all along and Crozier should have followed the chain of command. So I think for me, Bill, it comes down to one thing. Be careful what you put in a letter. So I think, <laughs> I think if, you, if you look at Crozier's letter, the thing that caused this kerfuffle, and you take out the emotion and the one sentence that was particularly dramatic was, quote, Sailors do not have to die, unquote. So if you read that letter without that and a couple other things where there's a little bit of velocity and emotion injected, it really does read as a very matter-of-fact sit rep. And I think in that light, even, well, I don't think it would have appealed to any print media folks, the San Francisco Chronicle or whomever, because it was really just sort of, here's what's up and, and very antiseptic. And his calls for assistance were laid out pretty well. And what you find out from the investigation. Now, admittedly, the investigation was done by the Navy. It wasn't a third party. So cynics can say, well, of course, it reads as if the Navy wasn't totally at fault and Crozier wasn't totally not guilty of uh, some missteps. But for me, the main takeaway is had he not put some of those more emotional lines, particularly that one line, sailors do not have to die in that letter, I believe he'd still be in command. Interesting point. USNI News last Friday on the 19th uh, put out the, the first report from the Naval Institute uh, when the CNO had his, uh, 
news conference uh, and announced that he had endorsed the findings of the investigation that the vice chief did. Uh, and then the CNO also said at that news conference that he would not be reinstating Captain Crozier as the CEO of the Roosevelt, right? Uh, and then over the weekend, we, we started getting some commentaries in. So we published Harlan Ullman, who uh, wrote a piece basically saying that if you read the, the, the CNO's letter, the endorsement, and also the full investigation, it doesn't look good for the chain of command, right? That it wasn't just Crozier that made some mistakes, but the entire chain of command uh, perhaps doesn't look too good in this whole thing. Uh, we've got another piece coming by a, a, a former naval officer, uh, Brett Odom, uh, who's looking at this, and, and, and he, he finds kind of similar things, right? Similar uh, themes in the investigation that there was a little bit of chaos in the chain of command um, and probably some missteps and, and a lack of communication, uh, and that the faults really just come down to the strike group commander, Admiral Baker, and his second star, you know, held up, and Captain Crozier's not being reinstated. So it's kind of interesting to see where this all the whole thing falls out. But yeah, we've been both the news team has been following it, and then we've published a couple, or we have our second commentary coming out uh, later today or tomorrow uh, on this, uh, you know, on this event. As as you said, you know, the story wasn't done in early July when uh, the, the acting SecNav fired Crozier. It's still not done now, but it continues to play out. Naval professionals, I would assume, if you're active duty and you're an avid listener to this podcast, you are a naval professional. Again, I recommend you read that report and, and come up with your own takeaways. And also read the coverage that Bill and his team have been coming at it from a bu bunch of different ways at ProceedingsUSNI.org and, and the magazine in, in the months to come, which introduces another topic that we've been kind of slicing and dicing, which is as a function of the George Floyd murder We've had a number of articles about the state of race relations in the sea services, including a podcast episode, which we're getting some feedback that's quite powerful about how that's influencing folks to approach racism in their work centers and that sort of thing. But, uh, Bill, what are some of the highlights from how the contributors and the team has been focusing on that issue? First, we had just a couple of weeks ago, and, and uh, our, our podcast listeners will remember the interview we had with uh, Coast Guard Commander Marcus Kennedy, who, who started this off saying that uh, racial tension in America required intrusive military leadership. Uh, then we had um, a piece by um, another African-American uh, naval officer, uh, Lieutenant Commander, writing about uh, the, the burden of the black naval officer. Uh, and that one got a lot of attention as well. And a lot of mainly, you know, supportive comments online. And then we just this week published, a, a couple days ago, we published a piece by Lieutenant Commander Reuben Green, U.S. Navy retired, also African-American officer, the case for renaming the USS John C. Stennis. And the Stennis is a ship I spent about a year of my life on uh, when it was uh, the, the newest aircraft carrier in the fleet back in 97-98 uh, workups and deployment. Uh, and and uh, Green lays out the, the the history of John C. Stennis, who was an American senator, uh, but also was a was a Dixiecrat, was an avowed, um, you know, anti. Uh, he was a he was a segregationist and, and did a lot of things to try to stop desegregation in America. Uh, so the the history there is it's it's, it's pretty eye opening when you op when you read Green's piece. 
about the history of John C. Stennis as a politician and as a judge uh, in, in America. So those three pieces so far, we continue to get more coming in over the transom on the topic. Uh, and we, we want, uh, as we've said before, we want that conversation to be happening in proceedings on our website and in our pages. Uh, so if, you're, um, if, if you have a mind to write about this topic, uh, please do. Please uh, send us your comments. The other thing I will say about the, our comments section on the site is it's been, by and large, productive. I'm proud of the discussions that have been happening around these articles. I was looking, right before we came on air here, I was looking at the comments around the Stennis piece. Um, it really is informed. And so that's a tribute to our readership. Thank you to those who have been commenting with thoughtful comments and productive comments. Uh, please keep that going as well. Amen. All right, well, let's get to our guest. Uh, joining us today from a uh, special purpose MAGTAF deployed to the southwest border in uh, California, Marine Captain Matthew Galladick, who wrote in the June issue of Proceedings, uh, starting on page 4849, Small Boats, Big Mission. And Ward, you met Captain Galladick uh, at uh, the Expeditionary Warfare School, what, in, in May at their graduation? Yeah, that was May, what was it, Matt, May ninth or something seventh okay yeah may 7th so we've talked on the show before about our relationship with the expeditionary warfare school they're one of our sponsored student programs um i go there at the beginning of the curriculum and, and introduce them to their sponsored student gift and talk about the heritage of proceedings particularly with respect to the marine corps sometimes uh, marines tend to think oh well we have the marine corps gazette Proceedings is a Navy thing, um, and I explained that, in fact, the the folks who've had bylines, starting with Major General Lejeune, uh, in Proceedings are a fairly impressive group, a very impressive group, and the stuff we've tackled in the pages of Proceedings has made the Marine Corps a, uh, a better organization. And one of the things we do with the EWS class is we have what we call the Lejeune Writing Award. Matt is this year's winner. Um, because of the COVID-19 situation, we weren't able to do the graduation at the theater at Marine Corps University as we normally do on the stage. I'm on the dais there with uh, with uh, the, the CO and the CG and some other folks, and, and uh, we hand the, the plaque and, and shake hands. And so none of that happened this year. Um, basically, we were all at Geiger Hall, which is the academic building for EWS, and we were all on walkie talkies and, and we were sort of told, okay, he's driving up. And so I went to the car window. I don't even think we made eye contact and I handed you your plaque. Like uh, you were at McDonald's drive through. Um, I, you had your wife riding shotgun, I think. And you guys were you on your way. I mean, you were, you were, you were about to go underway at that point, right? You were all packed up and ready to hit the road. Yeah, we, we weren't quite ready, uh, just yet because there was still a lot of, uh, stuff up in the air but yeah my, my wife and my one-year-old son uh in the back did the best they could to support you know my graduation uh fr from the car at, at that point but yeah. yeah it was definitely a once in a lifetime uh kind of experience not what you expect when you graduate but. right yeah that's a good way to put it the once in a lifetime experience so it was weird matt erickson had asked me to come come down there um, for that and we're always happy and i was happy to get out of the attic here you know and and, and go on i-95 and 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 q-town and all the old you know the haunts of q-town 
but it was it was weird. But uh, I'm glad now to see you here on Microsoft Teams and 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 you're down there at the border doing your thing. Um, so I apologize for how brief that was, how abrupt that was. Uh, but congratulations for uh, for winning the award. It is tough competition every year. Um, so let's talk about the article. The article's titled "Small Boats, Big Mission." What what are you talking about in this article? So so really, the whole thesis was that with the Marine Corps looking into the force design, getting into expedition advanced base operations, advanced operations, um, you know, the low key stuff, you know, I, I looked at it as, you know, we need to reexamine. And I think the commandant said the same thing, reexamine like our platforms for how we get to the fight uh, and really our lethality um, from extending beyond, you know, the current range of most surface connectors. Uh, and then even inward towards the inward portion of the using you know, the brown water, if you will. Um, I had a background as a platoon commander with a uh, small boat company. So that kind of brought me a little bit in that direction. I, I thought it was a great asset that we had with the 31st Mew uh, and something that we didn't take advantage of. And kind of a lot of commanders were risk adverse to employing small boats. Um, but as, you know, with EWS, with, with doing readings, you know, you take a look at some of the assets that are available now, like the Mark 6 patrol boat, the, the CB-90 with the Norwegian, uh, and just all the assets that small, these small combatants that we could bring to bear and increase the lethality of this small boat company uh, and really talk about a joint naval force um, really supporting one another. Uh, to me, it was really a no-brainer. So, Matt, when you were the company commander of that, that small boat company, what were the boats that you had uh, in that company at the time? Yeah, so I was a platoon commander. I was weapons platoon commander, um, and in that billet, I was also the chief navigator. So we were using the standard, you know, uh, rubber cricks, the the small black cricks, um, zodiacs or combat rubber, rubber rating cricks. Yeah, yeah, those those zodiac style boats, um, and, and you know, rightfully so. Like the best part about it was, as that small boat company, you're completely independent, right? For track company, you're relying on tracks, right? Granted, they're part of the Mew. Um, you know, for the air assault company, you're relying on the, the wing with the Mew and that's all great. But what made the boat company, I think different was you were able to support internally, like just that company. But the drawback was, you know, no fire, no firepower, limited number of spaces. Uh, so what I saw was always like this hesitation to use them, you know, for a real world mission. Um, and I think getting a joint naval thing with some of the assets available now, like, increases the firepower that we can bring to the fight, increases the different types of platforms, the different beaches that we could actually um, get onto uh, and assault with these. So I, I think it just gives another option for combatant commanders, for new commanders to employ Marines uh, in conjunction with what you know we want to do. So the, the opening photo that we have with the article is, uh, you mentioned a minute ago, the CB-90 fast attack craft, and that's something that the Norwegians uh, use, right? Did you have any experience uh, exercising with the Norwegians? I, I didn't, but at EWS, one of the best things is you know we get um, international students, and for my you know infantry squad um, occupational field you know exercises that we did there, uh, he was in my squad, and we were just talking, and he was he just mentioned the the CB90 and how they used them, and I was like, man, that sounds awesome, and, and all of a sudden you know we're sitting there in our bunks. Uh, down at Ford AP Hill at the time, and he's showing me videos of you know him and his platoon like 
beach in this thing, you know, the, the ramp coming out in the front and a squad of, you know, Norwegian like soldiers, Marines, like attacking a beach. And just like, I was like, why don't we, you know, have this thing, you know? And then he starts telling me about the armament it brings, comes to the fight with the weapons that it can mount on it. Really. I was like, man, this is, this is incredible. So that kind of, you know, caused a spark in my head and really got me to start uh, researching these type of things. So you point out in your article that the Marines, and I had forgotten this, the Marines actually had the small craft companies that patrolled the Euphrates in Iraq very early on in the war, and they were decommissioned about a couple of years after the original invasion. Um, what did they do, and why was it decommissioned? The small craft companies, uh, I continued to like see more research. So really, um, it was specialized trained Marines, um, infantry Marines that uh, – did this, they, they took, you know, boats, um, similar to, I think, stuff that the Coastal River Reinforce has today, uh, and pat- patrolled, patrolled the Euphrates. They did the same thing, training alongside, uh, you know, allies in South America. But, uh, again, really doing those patrols, um, employing Marines, you know, where, where they need to be. Um, and then the reason why they were decommissioned, Honestly, I was never able to find like a hard reason why, but that that asset goes away. And then a year later, you know, the Navy comes out with the Coastal River Reinforcers. Um, and, you know, to me, I was like, man, what, why do we ever get rid of that? And now today I see a lot of the Coastal River Reinforced like uh, things that they bring to the fight. And I like the fact that the Navy has that. Uh, again, even in the article, like the Navy is great at driving the boats, getting them to where they need to be. And the Marines need to focus on what happens when we get, get to the beach and everything inward. So to me, like you want to talk about a, a joint team, like you guys, you guys help get us there. You guys provide fire support and then, you know, Marines will hit the beach and take it from there with you guys supporting. So yeah, that's really that. So th- this is a conversation that's happening over and over in our pages, uh, and next year, and next month in the July issue of proceedings, you're going to see a similar piece written by a retired Japanese ground self-defense force general, two-star general. And, and you used in your, in the opening of your article, um, a, uh, you know, picture, if you will, Marines having to seize or, or assault uh, a small island or group of islands in the South China Sea. And this general mentions what's called the Southwest Island chain, which includes Okinawa in Japan, right? And the fact that the Japanese ground self-defense forces currently don't have assault force uh, capable uh, units that can, as you point out in your article for the U.S. Marines, get in inside and move rapidly inside the threat envelope of an A2AD envelope, right, with missiles coming down large, ponderous amphibious ships, LHA, LHA, LHD, LPDs, um, are now kept outside that threat envelope, you know, by hundreds of miles. And so the connectors to get Marines ashore um, don't have the ability to move quick and to move over the horizon. Um, so that's what you're calling for. But this uh, Japanese general has a very similar um, re- request. He mentions the Mark V Special Operations craft that the SEALs have used as, as an example of the kind of capability. You mentioned the CB-90, but I see echoes of this conversation happening and have been happening for a number of years now in our pages. You know, this 
as people have become more aware of the Chinese and even the Russian anti-access area denial capabilities, the questions now have come up in the, for the U.S. Navy and the Marines. Like, okay, so how do we assault a beach? How do we get forces ashore? How do we take and hold property? Uh, or, you know, assault it, move back, assault somewhere else, move back. As you, you pointed out, the, the expeditionary advanced base operations or Loki, the littoral uh, operations in a contested environment. So um, I'm just curious, um, your paper was a product of, you know, your, your sort of graduation product for the amphibious or the expeditionary warfare school. How much of this conversation was part of EWS in the past year for you? Um. I would say it was, as far as small combatants go, it, it was uh, pretty good. Um, we did do, you know, some looking at, you know, expeditionary operations as a whole, MU employment. Um, they gave us some Mark 6s to work with uh, in there. We actually got a tour and see some Mark 6s down in Norfolk um, with one of the, I can't remember the name of it now, but, you know, we went down the Norfolk and got a tour of all the ships. And the Mark 6 was like one of the premier things they got to show us this year, which they haven't in the past. Which I think tends to show like how important these uh, small combatants actually are. Um, but as far as you know, big conversations, it, there wasn't much. You know, when they gave us these assets to use in our planning and um, those type of things, they were like, "There's no real way to use them right now, so you guys be creative." And I thought that was interesting um, because you know, the, the, traditionally, in the way everyone's mind was set was like okay, Mark 6s are for, you know, the defense of the amphibious force, right? Like, that's what they're for. Um, it was fun to try to, like, break them out and be like, no, why can't we use them for fire support? Why can't we do a diversion or a feint, you know, on a landing beach that isn't our, like, primary one to really get deceptive with there? So the employment of these in a traditional amphibious operation sense is interesting. But the other thing, like you were talking about with, uh, I think, the article in July is, you know, we – our movement from these island chains and if we're doing an EABO concept and all that, currently the, the ships are huge lucrative targets. Um, and really depending on how fast they are, it's just that, that thing that's a lucrative target. But how do we move Marines? How do we move, you know, Japanese ground self defense force from these islands to keep them, keep them as a credible threat and keep them from being found and located, you know, a patrol base uh, that I would set up with my Marines. I stay there for 24 hours, right? So if we're on this island chain with a credible threat, you know, we got loitering munitions at the company platoon level. Um, they're only going to be so good. We can only hide our signature for so long before we need to move. Now, getting in AVs or an LCAC or something like that, like it's, it's going to be either slow or it's, it's going to be a huge signature. Now, if we separate, put into small combatants now, it's like we got, we have the speed, we have the low signature. So I think it just gives us options. So for the audience that may not be familiar with the current force structure of the Marine Corps, so big deck amphibs with V-22s, F-35s, that's kind of the way you'd get to the beach, right, Matt? I mean, that's your, sort of your primary way if, if we were, if the bubble right. was to go up. So it's funny because in your article, you mentioned that the criticism about your concept is this would never happen. I, I think that could actually be better applied to the big picture 30,000 foot concept of max V22s going over the horizon to get to some past the shoreline objective. I think that's 
in this world where we talk about pure conflict, but do are we really ever going to have a war with the Chinese mano a mano? More likely, we'd be at you know the Spratleys or other chuck points where you could see using this small fast boat concept with platoon size elements to either get intel or take down a communication station or something like that. Of the assets that you know about, what do you think would be the most viable, maybe off the shelf or, you know, what, what do you want in your, your vessel to support this mission? And then part B is how does it get from blue water into the literals? How does that happen in, in your concept? Yeah. So great, great question. So for the first one, I think it's, uh, you know, I think it's important that we maintain cricks for one, like uh, looking at Mew specific here. Um, I think it's important that you maintain cricks throughout the company, right? Cause whether we're doing clandestine or, you know, a little bit more of a raid style, I think those work. Um, but also I'd like to see, you know, four Mark sixes attached to, um, the Mew or this, you know, previous, uh, the ARG Mew concept. So four Mark sixes and also the CB 90 type, which I think for the Navy coastal riverine forces is actually called the riverine combat. I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but there's this very similar, um, maybe just not all things. So beefing, taking, you know, Marines with a suite of internal to the Marine companies, you have Cricks. And then with part of the Navy, like joint force now, we have four Mark six CB 90 style, um, platforms that would be able to support a movement of a platoon. Uh, and then some, uh, of the rigid hull inflatable, a little bit bigger than the cricks that they currently use for the VBSS mission. Uh, get, and they have, they have those already, um, uh, for each ship. So. That, that suite is what I would like to see because that just gives a little bit more option. Um, how do you get them from the blue water into the littoral? So that, that was another thing I really fought with here. Like, how do we see that be, being part of this? Um, and the, the truth is, you know, the Mark sixes have phenomenal range, uh, and they are equipped with, you know, onboard stuff for the crews. So they don't have necessarily have to go into these well decks or anything they just need to be stationed i think out of uh i can't remember where they are out in seventh fleet right now i think guam is already where they are um i have to get back but uh, again there they they're you know maybe beefing their numbers up to support to the 31st mew when it goes out the, and then the other uh pacific mews um and again just looking for pilots and crew there and then marines uh, on board when necessary. So these are just your standard infantry Marines or would these be MARSOC guys or does it matter? Is it mission dependent? Uh, I, I would like it to be your traditional Marine infantry, uh, like rifle company. Um, and the reason for that, you know, MARSOC has a very specific mission, but they don't go out with the Mew. They're, they're not going to be, you know, out in the Indio Paycom area ready to answer the call at any moment's notice ready to go, you know, seize an island so that we can employ HIMARS on there, right? Like ready to be that first action. So for me, it needs to be a infantry company. And that infantry company will, like in the article, have specialized training, just like any other uh, air assault company, track company. They get specialized training through EOTG or EWTG PAC. 
Um, but that is just all in support of the already all the Mew Mew training plan. Um, it it could already easily be built in. EWTG Pack already has uh, a great great program for small boats. Uh, and like I said, all you have to do to add to that is just familiarizing with these new platforms uh, that currently is seems to be very separated from Marine and those Navy small boat combatants instead of finding a way to utilize these two similar systems together. So, Matt, you mentioned in your article a little bit about the amphibious assault vehicle and now the newer amphibious combat vehicle that's taking the place of the AAV. Um, we, I think we had a, a, on the April issue of Proceedings, we had a beautiful picture of the ACV on the cover. Uh, and I, I got to talk to a couple of the Marines uh, out of Pendleton who are doing the, uh, the test and evaluation for that vehicle. Um, but uh, you pointed out it, it's, it replaces the AAV, but it's still slow. Uh, it's not going to go really far over the horizon from uh, a, a big deck amphibious ship with a well deck, right? So it's not going to be transiting 50, 100, 200 miles. It's really designed to transit at, from, you know, from the littorals, from you know, 12, 15 miles out, even less. And it moves pretty ponderously. It moves you know, 10, 10 knots or so. Um, so you mentioned it a minute ago, you mentioned uh, the types of uh, wargaming that you were doing at, at EWS and how the Mark 6s were just sort of thrown into the mix, like, hey, experiment with these, come up with some, some thoughts. Um, but I'm guessing that the AAV, ACV is more of the traditional planning a marine amphibious assault mission, right? Uh, so, so talk a little bit about how your idea segues either from or, or complements uh, what the, you know, the, the traditional marine amphibious assault or ACV kind of taking a beach would accomplish and, and what the differences are. Um, yeah, and I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying we have to get rid of uh, you know, the AAV or the ACV. I, I think, again, it, it's an enabler, especially once, I get, once you get Marines on land, like it's great to have you know, a Mark 19 and a 50 cal up there working for you when you're uh, moving on an objective. But um, I, I think, like, like you already mentioned, just the, you know, it says, I think 12 nautical miles is one of its, like, uh, bumper sticker things that says the AAV and ACV can do. But I I would bet you'd be hard-pressed to find any Marine in the Marine Corps who has launched an AAV from that far um, over the horizon. I mean, I've done it with Cricks, and it's... It, it, and it's not an easy thing and it, to be an AAV for that long, like the Marines, how combat capable are they going to be when you get ashore, right? It doesn't happen. Um, and not to mention, you know, that they can't shoot on the move. I think the ACV is um, saying that now it, it will have a stabilized gun. So maybe that's something else, but I think it can work in combination. Um, I think the, these small combatants give you the speed and maneuverability within that, even that close distance to where you have ACV the AAVs and ACVs to do amphibious demonstrations to really employ some more deception with an amphibious operation than we've really been able to. And it's just a, a complement to that, there, you know, amphibious withdrawals, amphibious demonstrations, those type of things to really keep the enemy guessing. Cause right now, um, you know, you watch AAVs getting dropped off the back of a, of a amphib and it's like, you, you know, what's coming. They, they pop out like ducks in a row. They all turn at the same time. Um, and, and there's really no surprise. And, and with, you know, maybe some naval surface fires uh, and, you know, some air, like that might soften the target. But at the end of the day, you still have 12 
very slow Amtraks coming towards you that are lucrative targets. Now, you even mix this Mark, um, some Mark Sixes and this, you know, other combat capable infantry company and that same thing. Like maybe they hit the beach first and they're softening up targets from a support by fire or something else, hitting them from a flank. And these AAVs are a demonstration. So yeah, to keep the enemy to do what, like looking at what Marines have traditionally done, but the action's happening over here with a, you know, with the, uh, crack, the combat riverine assault company is actually coming ashore. So they, to me, they just complement each other. I'm not definitely not calling for the AAV or ACB to go away. Uh, I just think it, it brings too many limitations and there's no, there's no in between right now from the Osprey being able to take from well over the horizon multiple aerial refuels and get Marines in behind enemy lines to the ACV that's getting launched, you know, 500 meters offshore, right? There, there seems to be nothing in between connecting them. Uh, and that's where I really think this coastal riverine, uh, infantry company can come into play. Yeah, that's the point. Um, obviously, Amphibs with landing craft remains a core competency of the Marine Corps. Never mind, we haven't really done that since Inchon. But yeah. it's not something that General Berger's uh, going to bail on. It, it really is the, the core competency. But I, I had the opportunity as a first-class midshipman. I did the Marine Option Cruise out to Kaneohe back when I thought um, I wanted to be a Marine aviator. Um, obviously, it didn't go that way ultimately. But... Um, the um I did have a chance to ride an LVT seven, and the first thing that happened when we hit the water was every guy, every grunt inside puked in his helmet, right. So to your point, and this was a fifteen minute ride, you know, and then we were on back of an LSD. I'm sorry, an LST, LST eleven eighty five. This is way before your time, Matt. The LST was this long, skinny with a derrick arm ship, had like a, you know, six foot draft, the most unseaworthy craft ever. And we watched these guys coming aboard from the beach at Kaneohe and, and load onto the aft end because they were about to go on float, right? They dropped us off and then they mm -hmm. went over to Westpac. And it was like watching carrier qualifications because the seas were pretty rough and, you know, the ramp would come up and out of the water and, and the, the, the guy was in the turret and the driver was there and he was like, go, go, go. And it would get crawled on the lip and would, and we're like, yeah, the sailors are on the fans. They're like, you know, grading the pass. And it was hairy as hell. I'm like, I would not want to have to do that. Like in a real war scenario, you know, because it just didn't seem to be time effective. And it just looked like a real hassle, not to mention very hairy for the guys in the landing craft. So, um, when we talk about doing this in a peer conflict, getting brigade size elements to the beach in a timely fashion, I don't know if we've actually done the math on that. I'm sure we have, but I think the answer would be, wow, that's going to take a long time. Not to mention those things are very much grapes because they're traveling, as Bill said, at a max of 10 knots. Um, that's just not the way we want to do it. So again, your idea has merit because it's agile, it's realistic, it's, it, it is a defense in depth or an offense in depth kind of a thing. So we're, we're running out of time. We mentioned in passing at the beginning that you were on the border. Can you talk to us a little bit about how that mission is going and, and what your day is like there? Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to do the best I can. Um, again, right now we're, we're in support of the special purpose Baghdad, California border patrol. Um, Marines down here are, are really just in support of them. Uh, making sure that they have everything to, for their mission. Um, you know, 
every day is a little bit different, but um, at the end of the day, the, the Marines have a mission to support whatever the Border Patrol uh, wants. Um, so with that, there, there's a little bit of stuff I can't talk about, and, and then I'm going to leave up for uh, maybe somebody else in, in an AAR, but Marine, Marines are out there supporting. Um, it's it's hot, you know, it's it's not the most exciting thing, but Marines are doing a lot of good stuff, a lot of learning out here, and a lot of stuff that will help us tie over to when we deploy uh, in June on the 11th Mew. So I know it's pretty vague, but there's just a limited amount of stuff that I can pass on. You said at the start that you are a company commander with 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, and you're doing your, uh, you're not only learning the mission out there on the border, but you're also uh, doing the turnover as you're taking command of that company at the same time. Correct. Yeah. And, and the great thing is I took command of Bravo Company uh, and Bravo Company for First Battalion, First Marines is traditionally the Raider Boat Company. So um, whether, you know, by you know, design or by just sheer luck, uh, I get to command a group of Marines who have, you know, the Raider tradition, that small boat tradition in it. So uh, that's something we're playing here and something we're going to look to uh, exploit when we're definitely on, on our Mew. Um, so, oh, yeah. you, so after a couple of months there on the southwest border, you'll go back to Pendleton, start your workups for a deployment with a with a Mew. Correct. Yep. We chop we chop to the 11th Mew right around December 1st uh, with a deployment in June of 2021. All right. Well, we hope that uh, as you start that workups and then uh, you know through the deployment, what you learn on that deployment. Hopefully you get to uh, exercise some of the concepts that are in your proceedings article, and we hope that you'll write for us again. Yeah, uh, I am. And, you know, not you guys didn't tell me this or anything, but a plug. Uh, I didn't know much about the proceedings until I went to EWS. Uh, but since then, you know, been an avid reader. Um, and, and, again, this is the first time I've written, but always looking at the, uh, the essay contest and looking to continue to get things published. Uh, and, again, like you mentioned earlier, the – the Gazette is usually the Marine Corps, especially Marine Corps officer, like, no, that's what you, you go for. But the proceedings reach uh, and ability to, like, affect not just your the Marine Corps, but the Navy, the Coast Guard, and really be that joint force, to me, is where it's at. So I appreciate the, you know, you guys selecting my essay, publishing me and sitting down for me today, because I, I think being part of the U.S. Naval Institute and being part of the proceedings is really how we get uh, the positive change we need for all the services. You know, we had a piece I was going to mention a minute ago by uh, now First Lieutenant L.J. Winnefeld uh, last August, who wrote a piece about how to use the littoral combat ships differently with Marines on board, right? Putting uh, maybe a platoon of Marines, a couple of uh, Cobra gunships, uh, and using those similar to what you've said here today about, you know, as uh, feints, offensive diversions, you know, get some forces somewhere real quick, do something as a raid and move back. Uh, but it's just an, an additional tool that maybe the Navy Marine Corps team hasn't thought about how they're going to employ it. Uh, but here's a, here's a new thought, right? So he was, you know, here's a young Marine writing about how the Navy could use littoral combat ships differently. And I think that that resonated across the Navy and the Marine Corps from what we've heard from feedback. So that's kind of cool. I'm staying up to date because because of you guys and, and what all the stuff you're putting out. So I appreciate it. All right. So the article is Small Boats, Big Mission. It's in the June issue of Proceedings. It's also online at usni.org. 
Captain Matthew Gallandick has been our guest here on the Proceedings Podcast. Again, Matt, good luck down there on the border and with when you chop to the mew and, and what happens going forward. As, as Bill said, keep in touch with us. Let us know what's happening. Will do. Thank you, guys. And congratulations on winning the Lejeune Award. That's big. That's how commandants are made. Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> All right, that's going to do it for this episode of the Proceedings Podcast. Remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute. We will see you next time.